Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week we have a real treat as I'm speaking with Peter Nelson, Director of Photography for a fantastic beekeeping documentary called The Pollinators. So stay tuned to hear what it takes to produce a beekeeping movie and to find out how you can get to watch it. And Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. So before we get into the interview proper, I just wanted to play three clips from the film. And you will hear, first of all, a gentleman by the name of Brett A.D. from A.D. Honey Farms, followed by Marianne Fraser, who is a senior extension associate who has retired from Penn State University and then finally Susan Kegley who's an organic chemist and CEO of the Pesticide Research Institute and hopefully this will give some idea of what the documentary is focusing on. You know it depends on whose numbers you look at but the uh, USDA numbers say we have somewhere around 2.6 million hives and uh, the Bee Informed Partnership out of Maryland's been shown been losing 30 to 40 percent of our hives. So, a 30 percent loss of there puts us down to about 1.8 million hives, and that's about what the almond industry takes. So, we're almost at 100 percent utilization of the bee supply. You know, it's one straw too many. <laughs> you got mites, you got virus, you got you know poor nutrition, and then you have pesticide exposure on top of that. It's more than we should expect of any, any organism to survive. I think the general public should know that our food system is threatened by the fact that the bees are in trouble. And they should care about that because they eat food. Uh, hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. And thanks for taking time out to join me to talk about your new film, The Pollinators, and also allowing me the privilege of previewing the film, which I've watched quite a few times now and I have to say the quality is fantastic so congratulations on a fantastic documentary. Well thanks for having me on it's great to be with you. And we're speaking to you in New York State today aren't we? Yeah I live about a hundred miles north of New York City in what's called the Hudson Valley region here. Great and um, I have to say we've got you up quite early because it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning here, which is, I guess, about 6, 5, yeah. 6 o'clock yeah, in the six, morning over there. 6 a.m., yep. Yeah. Great. So before we talk about the film, can I ask you about your own personal beekeeping experiences? The fact I know that you're a beekeeper, so could you just share some of, uh, some of what you do with your bees? Yeah, so I've been a backyard beekeeper for a little over 30 years. Um, and, you know, strictly, uh, you know, I never have more than five hives. Right now I have three. And uh, so that's, you know, it's just a was pure hobby for me. And just I fell into it, you know, many years ago. Uh, I grew up a free-range kid, and in, in as we call it here in the U.S., and um, could never keep me inside. And I still very much like that. And so beekeeping was a sort of a natural uh, hobby for me. And I just fell in love with it and just adore it. Fantastic. And presumably, I say presumably, you're using Langstroth hives, I guess? Yes. Yeah. I, I, but, I only have Langstroth. Although I'd love to do a, a top bar. I know you experimented with that. And, uh, and I would uh, I'd be very, I'd have friends who have them and I'd love to do it just as an experiment. Yeah. The, the 
top bar project is is kicking off this year. We've just built one, so it'll be interesting to see how we get on with the bees. But let's move on to the the film. Your background is one of filmmaking, isn't it? That's that's where you're coming at this from. Yeah, I'm, uh, my day job, if you will, is that I'm a cinematographer or a DOP, as I think I'm referred to in, in the UK, uh, which is a fancy word for a cameraman. And so I've been a cameraman for um, many years, about as long as I've been a beekeeper, maybe a little bit more. Um, and uh, and so have a background with doing um, documentaries. I've done a lot of work for the BBC and other uh, British programming, as well as commercials and uh, narrative and documentary feature films. And so this is my first film as a director, um, as well as a cinematographer. Fantastic. And you, you made a short film called Dance of the Honeybee previously, haven't you? Yeah, there's a, there's a six minute film uh, called Dance of the Honeybee that is a, that's available online now. It's on YouTube and Vimeo, and that I guess was sort of the genesis of this project. It was done as a contest, if you will, uh, for a, a very high speed camera um, company, and uh, and I had a great time doing it. Um, an unbelievable response to the film, and it sort of got me thinking about how to make a bigger project, something that I could bring my combination of a cinematographer and beekeeping to try and tell the story of uh, commercial migratory honeybees and the effect on their bee on the um, agriculture here in the United States. Sure. And when did you start filming um, the pollinators? I started the pollinators, uh, did a year of research and pre-production, and then a uh, we filmed uh, over a year uh, through a whole season of pollination uh, starting in almonds in uh, California, almond pollination in California, yep. and that's the, the biggest pollination in the world. And we finished up in harvesting cranberries in the snow in uh, eastern <laughs> Massachusetts in Wareham. Fantastic. And, uh, and then we edited for about a year. And so we're just about a year out with the film right now, the release of the film. Um, we've Last year was uh, primarily film festivals and uh, getting a um, sort of a ground... Uh, ground-up uh, distribution uh, process, and, and we're going to be bringing it to England, actually, pretty soon. That's, that's fantastic. And um, I'd like to think that you had a really large team with you recording all of this action, but I guess uh, that's not the case. No, no, it was, it was very much a, kind of a mom-and-pop operation, and um, uh, I, the only thing that I had with me when I was knew that I was going to sit down and do an interview with a, with a person, I would have a, um, an audio recordist with me, um, and okay, uh, yeah. many, many times I was out uh, by myself and um, uh, just and that's that's great. I, I love that. It gave me complete freedom. But also, you know, I was responsible for everything. So that's a bit of work. And it, was, <laughs> so it was it was, uh, it was we ended up with uh, several hundred hours of uh, footage and we sure. carved it down to 92 minutes and Fantastic. just had a great time. Just wonderful. Yeah, I can imagine the opening shot. So let's move on to the film now. The the opening shots show what is, in fact, a very industrial approach to beekeeping. There's trucks and forklifts and lorries, hundreds of hives on board. And one of the commercial beekeepers, and I'm afraid I haven't made a note of their names, but one of the commercial beekeepers is explaining in one clip that there's he's got something like 18,000 hives that he's placing on around 40 uh, I think you call them semi-trucks, a truck and trailer kind of configuration, right at the start of the almond pollination season. 
Yeah, so I, I, I became very much interested in this world of commercial migratory beekeeping, and and I wanted to kind of throw people immediately into this beautiful, magical, realist world of uh, of beekeeping that commercial beekeepers do, which is at night um, with uh, colored lights and a lot of smoke, and they move millions of hives around the country all the time. And it's a story that most people don't know. Uh, at least people here in the U.S. know that this happens. And so they move, uh, you know, as you said, a semi-truck semi or tractor-trailer uh, with, uh, you know, 400, 450 hives uh, on pallets around, and they, they'll put them in the orchard uh, at night when the bees are in the hive or, or very early morning. And uh, and it's just mind-boggling, the, the scale of the whole thing. And, it, and I just fell in love with uh, with how it looked. It was it was crazy and frantic and and wonderful and and these beekeepers are some of the hardest working people I've ever met. Yeah, they certainly put in the hours when they're moving the bees around. I, I really loved the atmospheric night shots and that red glow that you achieved from the vehicle lights and I guess they're using red lights not to disturb the bees so much when they're exactly. moving them. Yeah. So it focuses on the bee farming businesses in the USA and many UK beekeepers, I think certainly what I would term backyard beekeepers over here, would be absolutely amazed at the sheer scale of the bee farming situation in the States. I, I've been online and managed to get some data from the um, United States Department of Agriculture, and I just want to share that with the listeners, and I'll post a, a link to the data so that people can go and have a look. And I'll also make sure that we post links to your film's website as well, Peter, so that Great. everybody can get across to there. So this data comes from 2016, and in 2016, pollination services accounted for 41% of the commercial bee farmers' revenue worth a total of $290 million, with each hive costing the farmers, the almond farmers, between $165 to $220 for a five to six week stint. And that covers 921,000 acres of almonds, almost the entire population, uh, commercial bee population, is used to go down to the almonds. And that's a according to the data, around 1.76 million hives of bees. And the question for you is really, did you get a sense of that scale? Because it certainly comes across in the in the film. Yeah, it's, it, it's uh, so what they, what, yes, indeed, it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's not like you see 5,000 tractor trailer trucks lined up all at the same time because it's such a massive area in almonds. And so it was this time of year, and it's happening right now as we sit here, um, they're moving uh, hundreds and thousands of trucks across the country. Each truck has 400, 450 hives on it, on pallets. And the the scale is just amazing. And so I, I, as I was filming, I would meet beekeepers in the middle of the night, um, somewhere in the middle of almond orchards. And there are more almonds now than there were then, according to what, uh, what I know. It's over a million acres now of wow. almonds that are being uh, pollinated and more bees are required. And so it's put a sure. big pressure on um, producing and keeping these bees up, the amount of hives that they need, because if there is no pollination, um, there is no fruit or there's no nut in this case. And so they, they need to have uh, almonds in the Central Valley of California are almost 100% pollinated by honeybees. 
And yep. because it is a giant monoculture of a single crop, there are no native bees basically there, or very few, not enough to pollinate what they need to need to do. And then, of course, after the flowers are gone off the almond trees, it's a desert, a food desert for any insect. So it requires these beekeepers to bring in um, bring in this many uh, bees as essentially as, as an insurance policy for the farmers. Yeah, and and I would have to say. Uh, Certainly, the scale is mind-boggling. I don't think most people can't be critical of that because prior to talking to you, I discovered that I'm quite a significant user, end user of almonds. We've got almond milk in the fridge. We have ground almonds for cakes, sliced almonds for, dare I say, cakes again, and whole almonds that I use for some homemade granola. So it looks as if personally, I'm part of the demand that's driving that increase in production. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I wanted to get across is this idea about where our food comes from and where, you know, what is the connection to our food? And yeah, we're all, not all, but most of us and myself included are big users of almonds and, and I love them. And um, yeah. it's very important to know that these beekeepers are not doing this because they want to. I mean, they're responding to the changes in our agricultural system here in the U.S. over the last decades that require the the bringing in of uh, of uh, managed honeybees, uh, because remember that uh, honeybees, the European honeybee, is not native to the U.S., North, North America. Yeah. It was brought over with uh, with our first settlers. And so the uh, it, this is all dependent upon the changes in agriculture and the single monoculture crops and simplified, more chemically dependent agriculture has required that, that bees be brought in. And um, and these beekeepers, it's, it's also important to know that they, they really care about their bees. You know, as much as I do, I found yep. that these beekeepers, they are, they are considered a livestock, in quotations, by yep. the USDA here. But they're very much, um, they care about their bees, uh, I would say, as much as I do. And they're really careful about how they move their bees. They always lose some bees in transportation, but they do use specialized truck drivers or lorry drivers that are used to handling livestock and travel according to weather and everything else to to make sure that they're done as safely and uh, quickly as possible. Sure. And in in the film, one of the uh, bee farmers gets called out to what looks like a, a case of probably pesticide or herbicide poisoning while he's got his bees on the almonds. Do you know... Um, First of all, how severe that was across his bees, and also did he discover what the problem actually was? Yes, it was. Uh, he he did, and I was lucky to be there. Lucky in the sense that it makes for a good scene in a film. Although it made me personally sick to my stomach uh, sure. to see that. Uh, it was very upsetting to me and him uh, because he personally lost uh, fifteen hundred or more hives that day. I think there are a total wow. of five of 5,000 hives that were affected that day. And what it was, was a neighboring farm uh, was spraying and there was some sort of uh, mix of uh, uh, insecticide, fungicide, or whatever that uh, that drifted or was improperly sprayed. And the bees got uh, sort of caught in the, as collateral damage. And it was just, it was really traumatic. That's horrific, isn't it? I just, I, I'm considered a relatively small beekeeper i guess in in the states i'd just be a backyard beekeeper i've only got 80 colonies currently and to lose 1500 colonies would be soul destroying it would be heartbreaking 
Yeah, it's it's uh, he's that uh, beekeeper Brett Ad is uh, the biggest beekeeper in the country, um, right. and uh, and he uh, I don't know what his exact number was, but it's uh, was roughly uh, he keeps around a hundred thousand hives with his family. <laughs> it's a big big operation. He's the biggest yeah. beekeeper probably in the world. Wow, that is uh, uh, just mind boggling. That's just incredible. So it's the film. Crazy, yeah. The film moves on and follows these massive articulated lorries or semis traveling to the various crops and you highlight the effects of the chemical treatments on the colonies and discuss with some of the beekeepers the day-to-day challenges that they face in dealing with those losses. Yeah, so so what happens here in the U.S. is is this movement of uh, bees are moved into California for almonds, the commercial bees, this time of year for five or six weeks. After the bloom is done, the uh, the beekeepers pack up their hives and they move them off either to uh, start honey production in some cases, and many other beekeepers move their bees off to pollinate other crops, whether they're apples, blueberries, cranberries, avocados. There are 400 or something common fruits, vegetables, and nuts wow. that are pollinated by uh, insects in the U.S. And so there are these migratory routes that go up the west coast of the United States into the Midwest and then across back east and up the east coast from, you know, South Carolina all the way up to Maine. And so it's this incredible logistical operation every year uh, where bees get packed up and moved uh, around multiple times to, to uh, I, yeah, this pollination. I, and I guess beekeepers generally appreciate um, the wide variety of plants that our honeybees help to pollinate, but... For those non-beekeepers out there, um, I don't think some would consider, for instance, avocados. They, they just wouldn't think that that needs honeybees to pollinate. So it's uh, it's really important that we get this information out there to non-beekeepers. Yeah, totally. And, and the, I, I wanted to really make people think about that. Here in the U.S., we're, we're three or four generations away from the farm. And so many of us have lost that connection to who grows our food, how it's grown, where it's grown, and, and what it looks like even on a plant. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing. And so I really wanted to kind of open the door a little bit and make people aware a, a little bit about establish a connection to our food and, and where it comes from. If you know, And I've had people say this to me, it's very rewarding that they go into the supermarket or the grocery store and they look at their fruit in a different way now. And that's, uh, yeah. that's a, just an amazing thing for me. That's, yeah, that's a huge success, I, I think. Um, when the bees are taken to the top fruits, particularly there's one segment that is talking about apples, I was really surprised to hear about this process of chemical thinning that um, the farmers use, and that was also having an impact on the honeybee colonies there. Yeah, it, it, so so what happens with apples is that uh, at the end of a branch, imagine there are uh, five, six flowers. The first flower out is the one that ideally they want to um, have pollinated, and that's called the king flower. And right. then if every flower on the end of an apple branch grew into an apple, uh, it would be too heavy for the tree. The fruit would be much smaller. And so they, the orchard owners want to uh, limit the number of pollinated flowers that are end up being fruit. And so the traditional way to do that was to go and snip off the, uh, snip off the flowers or remove the fruit after the, the pollination has happened to get that optimum number. What some orchards do is they do what is called chemical thinning. And and they either thin the flowers 
uh, after the pollination to abort the flower that is uh, that they don't want, or they uh, thin the fruit uh, chemically. And unfortunately, uh, there is a um, an insecticide um, that is very effective. I think because of the acidic quality of it in doing this in the flower end of it, and um, that's called seven. And we we had another beekeeper that was waiting to move his beekeepers out, and a neighbor and again a neighbor orchard went through to thin their flowers and the bees are flying. They're still looking yeah. for flowers and they got caught up in that. And so there was, um, you know, he lost a, a bunch of bees on that situation as well. It's, it's just, some of it's just kind of crazy. And, and is that really just a communication issue between <laughs> the farmers, the neighboring farmers that they need to talk more closely? Do you think? I think so. Yeah, they're, they're in fact, it's, it's, it's good to know that they're, they are trying to they're implementing something in almonds this year. There's a new app that is uh, uh, giving uh, pesticide control applicators and, and pesticide applicators and farmers an idea about where particular uh, bees are so they can help to uh, identify where bees are and so they don't do this inadvertent spray. But I think there is a lot of work that can be done in terms of communication. Um, a lot of time the farmers, orchard owners, and beekeepers are all on the run, you know, through the spring, moving as quickly as possible and trying to, you know, fight with weather and everything else. Yeah. But I, th to me, the technology is there. We all have uh, smartphones or most of us have smartphones and they can say, hey, you know, hey, I'm going to be spraying. Are your yeah. bees out? Or, I, you know, my bees are here. Don't spray yet or whatever, you know. So I think that sure. a lot of could be done to uh, communicate better about where bees are, uh, you know, and let farmers and pesticide control applicators know you know, what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And and when the film turns to focusing and discussing those chemical interventions uh, and obviously the negative effect that it has on um, pollinators, and that's all pollinators, not just the honeybees, of course, the approach taken by the US government agencies compared to the European approach, which I think is termed in the film the precautionary principle, that gets discussed. And the discussion really is that it seems the European approach is a much more sensible approach than is currently being taken by the US government. Yeah, very much so. And we bring that up because it is an important difference in the precautionary principle in the uh, European Union and the UK um, I guess it's all one thing now, or not one thing now. <laughs> <laughs> the clock is ticking. <laughs> um, sorry about that. <laughs> People think it's either a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an important thing that the, the precautionary principle is, as is done in Europe, is um, let's test the product and make sure it's completely safe before we release it in the environment. That makes a lot of sense, and it seems very logical. Here, um, the mostly the chemical companies um, are able to establish their own test, do their own test, and they get conditional registration, which means that the EPA here says, okay, we think this is safe enough to put out into, into work, and if there's a problem, we'll try and fix it later on. And, and right. that, I think, is really risky because we have problems where pesticides and it's not just pesticides, but it's 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 herbicides, fungicides, uh, insecticides may be getting used that have impacts that are hard to remediate or change later on. And uh, I think there's a big economic driver behind this. And I, I just think, you know, much more could be done to make sure, ensure things that are safe before they're put into into work, into uh, implemented into the field.
Yeah, it, it, and it seemed the EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency. Correct. It, it, it seemed that the chemical companies were setting up their tests, carrying out their tests, sorting through their own results, and paying for that. And that money was going into the EPA to fund the EPA almost. So I, I, I know that's a simplistic kind of view, but it seems almost like the chemical companies are funding the EPA. And so the EPA don't want to upset the chemical companies because they might lose their funding. Exactly right. And I, and I think that, you know, much more could be done. If, just for example, if we had completely independent, corporate unfunded, unsupported, if it went into a bank, for, for instance, for a sure. fund, an independent fund, so universities could test it that were right. independent of the corporations, I think that could be a much better system. But, you know, it, right now, that's not the way it's done. The, the, either yeah. the uh, corporations themselves do the testing or labs that they control do the testing. There's not a lot of independent uh, testing that is done. That is done uh, more by science, you know, by universities. But right. a lot of times before these chemicals are, are released, the, the, the funding that leads to their approval, the testing that leads to their approval is done essentially by the corporations themselves. And I think that a lot could be done to make that better. And did you try to get any input from either the chemical companies or the EPA? Did, did you talk to any of those to try to get them involved in the film, or, or was that not something that you were looking to do? We talked long and hard about that, and I decided ultimately not to do it because I've done enough filming with corporations and governments that I didn't want a PR person sitting there telling me, you know, lying <laughs> right. to the camera. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I also wanted the viewer to make up their own mind about this. And I wanted the beekeepers and the scientists in the film to tell that story. And right. so, so I, I decided ultimately that's going to make a, um, a, a stronger story. I didn't have, um, no, I, I just decided I didn't want to go down sure. the road. It's a complex story. And I just thought that would really muddy the waters. Yeah, no, that, and that's that's fine. So there's a heavy emphasis on monoculture, and obviously a monocultural diet for bees is as bad as it is for us. And I was really interested in the way that the film almost moved away from beekeeping a little bit and went into the farming community. And you've got these pockets of farmers that were looking almost to turn the clock back to when their grandfathers and great-grandfathers were working the land. And the principles of farming seem to be uh, a lot more sensible, dare I say. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So we we wanted I, what I wanted to try and do was connect the bees to how our food is grown. And as you said, you know, having a simplified diet is is not good for pollinators. As same for us. You know, we eat you know, just toast every day. It's not going to be good for us. So I wanted to having that diverse landscape is really important. And there are farmers here that are farming more regeneratively, more sustainably using cover cropping and serious crop rotation, adding to the soil through what they plant in it and never leaving the soil bare. And so it becomes habitat, it becomes richer soil, it becomes less chemically dependent on herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides. And it's a, it's a much healthier environment for pollinators and beneficial insects. And that balance, I think, can really, it's not going to work 100% of the time, but having more of an IPM, as they call it, or integrated pest management system, where you see, okay, we have a certain insect here uh, that is a pest, and we'll address that now with a 
targeted insecticide, whereas much of the insecticide use is done here is on coated seeds. And it's kind of like, as somebody told me, it's kind of like taking an aspirin in the morning because you might have a headache. It's right. dealing with something that is a problem that does not necessarily exist and is still putting the chemical in the environment. And so these regenerative sustainable farmers are really making an impact. And they're, uh, it's very exciting to see what they're doing. Um, it's not really as easy as planting one single crop every year, harvesting that same single crop every year. They have to manage uh, a little bit more. But for some of them, their costs are down because they're not using as many chemicals, putting in inputs, as they call it here, um, into the, their farming operation. And um, they're, they're really benefiting from it. And, and in addition to, most importantly, growing a healthier food for us. And I think... One of the, the really nice comments, and I'm sure a lot of people have picked up on this, is that when you discuss trying to extend this system to other farmers and getting neighbouring farms to take on the same approach, that the guy in the film said their attention would be grabbed when they see new trucks, because new trucks mean that they're obviously doing OK. Yeah, it's, it's funny because par farmers, the farmers that I know, really pay attention to what their neighbors are doing. Uh, not unlike beekeepers, you know, you can tell, you can sort of gauge uh, people's success by uh, by their trappings, if you will. And sure. uh, so, so having a new pickup truck uh, really makes your neighbor pay attention to, you know, what is that guy doing that's uh, that's working so well for him? Yeah, absolutely. And the documentary seemed to conclude on a really positive outlook. The the story is not one of woe and disaster and this is going to be the downfall of, of beekeeping. It looked like it was ending on a very positive approach. Is that, um, is that what you were trying to achieve with the ending? Absolutely. It's very, it was very important for me because I wake up every day as an optimistic person. My personal approach is not to tell people what they should do, but to try and keep my side of the street clean and hope that my neighbors pay attention. And I, I think that what I love about this topic is that there's something that everyone can do to make it better. And I believe that we really can make it better by the changes that we make. It's really important for people to realize that every time you buy food, you're voting with your dollars, where you buy it, who you buy it from, connecting with those people, supporting your local economies and your local farmers. Buying honey from a local beekeeper is super important uh, because you're, you know that you're going to get local honey that's, you know, close to you. You're supporting yeah. your neighbors and your, your local habitat, and you're not going to get some junk that came from Southeast Asia, which might not even be honey. And yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's really important to that there's so many things that people can do with uh, not using pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, um, insecticides on their lawns, creating less lawn and more pollinator habitat, educating your kids, uh, talking to local officials about pesticide-free policies in your communities is all stuff that we can do. It's very actionable. And that was really important to me from the beginning because I wanted people to use this as a conversation starter to go out and say, hey, did you know that you know, uh, so-and-so is, is selling honey in down the lane here and we should buy it from him. We should support that person because it's important for us to have, uh, have bees and, and uh, you know, support our communities. Yeah, absolutely. So the big question for beekeepers here in the UK will no doubt be, how can they get to see your film, The Pollinators? 
Yeah, well, first off, we have a website called thepollinators.net, and um, we are going to be uh, releasing the film in the UK. Um, that's going to come up in February, I think is when we're going to start. And we're, we're going to be doing this uh, distribution method, if you will, through a company called Demand Film, where people can request the film in their local cinema. And they, you really have to re make a reservation. You don't get charged until the uh, a threshold of seats, 40 or 50 seats. Here is what it is. And that way, the cinema, there's no risk to the cinema. And at that point, the, the event becomes live. And at that point, people get charged for their tickets. So right. there's no risk to the audience. There's no risk to the cinema. And we can bring it. It's worked very successfully here in the U.S. We can bring it into communities that normally wouldn't get a film about a small independent film about beekeeping or uh, agriculture into our communities. And we've we've screened it super successfully here in the U.S. And then also Canada, um, Australia and New Zealand and the U.K. is uh, is our next stop. Ultimately, it will be released uh, via streaming and later on by DVD or what other methods we have, formats we have. But the initial thing is going to be through this demand film. And uh, we've, we've just had an unbelievable response to the film. Uh, I'm going to a, a screening later on today. It's going to be 350 people in a, in a small community in Connecticut. So it's, uh, it's super exciting. It's people are just, it's a story that, a lot of people hear about the bees and how bees are moved and how it matters according to our agriculture is um, is really, a, I, I say it's kind of the important story that most people don't know they need to know. And yep. it's, it's really kind of ties into something that we deal with every time we sit down for a meal. Yeah. I mean, one out of every three bites of food we eat is something that's pollinated by an insect. So it's, uh, sure. it really matters. I, I, and I have to say, you, you've obviously recorded the film you've edited it all done you've done all that work yet your enthusiasm for it even now after so many years of being involved in it is still way up there so uh, you're obviously very passionate about it well you know it's funny as as uh, I, I know from working as a cameraman every year over the years that the one thing that always works is passion. And so yeah. this was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this film is it is a subject that I'm very passionate about. Uh, my wife and my, who's my wife, who's also the executive producer of the film, Sally Roy, I need to mention her is we are <laughs> both very much interested in food and our food system, agriculture, and we love to talk about it. And it's just, uh, it's where we all, we center our lives around meals and sharing and food and getting outside and connecting people to uh, to food is really important to me. And uh, I, I love talking about it. I love the people that I've met, like yourself, in this process. It's just uh, wonderful. It's just uh, been an amazing experience. So I, I obviously get a little uh, excited about it. Yeah, no, and it comes across, Peter, I have to say. I, I think uh, for people listening, uh, I'm talking to Peter via Skype at the moment. We're on a video call and looking over Peter's shoulder, I can see that the sun is starting to come up. The sky is lightning. It must be almost breakfast time. So I think we'll we'll draw a close to our conversation here. I'm really grateful to you, Peter, for joining me this morning. And I wish you every success with the film. And of course, if you ever consider coming over to the UK to make a documentary, do be sure to look me up. Well, I'd love to. Thanks, thanks again for having me. It's great to connect with uh, with you and with other beekeepers around the world. It's, it's I've, I've been lucky enough to. 
do a lot of travel through my work. And whenever I go somewhere, I always go to a farmer's market to find out what the local food right. is about. I always meet beekeepers and it's a connection among beekeepers, whether it's in Asia or France or the Canada, or, you know, the beekeepers are beekeepers. And we, there's yep. a very collegial effort, I think, among beekeepers to share knowledge. And, you know, what you do is essentially the same, but slightly different than what I may do. And that's okay. Yep. And I learn something every time I talk to another beekeeper. And, uh, and I, I just love that. It's a, it's an endless well of, uh, information and knowledge. And so I'm, I, I would love to come over and, and uh, look at bees. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I hope your screening today goes really well and we'll catch up again sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks again, Stuart. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. And before we go, I just wanted to say, if you're not yet familiar with Patreon, do catch up with more of my beekeeping journey by checking out the content list on my creator page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I'm going to end with a couple of the opening quotes that we had from the film The Pollinators, and I'll catch up with you all next week. You know, it's one straw too many. <laughs> you got mites, you got virus, you got, you know, poor nutrition, and then you have pesticide exposure on top of that. It's more than we should expect of any, <laughs> any organism to survive. I think the general public should know that our food system is threatened by the fact that the bees are in trouble. And they should care about that because they eat food. <laughs> <laughs>